Thanks for being here today. This is Manufacturing Session 203. Uh, my name is Patrick Buckner, and I'm part of the business development function here at AWS and part of the life sciences industry vertical. Um, Roland is joining me, but I'll introduce him a little bit later. But uh, we're, we're excited that you're here today. The picture that you see here is actually from very early stage penicillin production. Uh, and I want to highlight it because there's an expression in the life sciences biopharma world about manufacturing that if you had a time machine and you went back 50 years and you took a pharma um, operator and brought him to today's world, he would recognize everything, the equipment, the processes, things would look very similar. Um, and I think that when I started my career 20 years ago that there was some truth to that, but what we're seeing now is a huge pivot to uh, modernizing manufacturing and, and biopharma and it's a very exciting time for us. Um, so my goal today is that we actually challenge that, um, that old expression that you would agree with me that there are companies such as Moderna that are making huge strides in this area. So today process manufacturers, whether it's uh, oil and gas or chemical or biopharma, they recognize the fact that better data equals better decisions. But if you unpack that, that's a pretty, that's a challenging, it's easy to say and hard to do. So this transition from data to uh, information, to insights, to prediction is very challenging to do. But um, we know that in the biopharma space, we're working with very regulated processes, but there's still a tremendous opportunity to innovate within those processes. So things such as uh, quality parameters, being able to enable things like release by exception or continuous production uh, is really important to guarantee drug supply in the biopharma space uh, and optimize results from a, a financial standpoint as well. Um, another area we see a lot of focus is on prediction. So as opposed to reacting to things that have happened, how do we actually predict what's going to happen before we actually have the negative event? An easy one to pick on would be predictive maintenance. So uh, we have customers that know, for example, 60 days out before a pump's actually going to fail so they can make sure that they don't have production interruptions. Um, visibility, again, sounds simple but is incredibly important. So just the process of giving operators more visibility into real-time metrics. Uh, we've had customers such as Nova Nordisk see you know, huge results from that and, and, and a significant number of benefits. And then finally, um, maximizing operator performance. So the two main reasons that batches fail in the biopharma world is around contamination, which is largely human beings, uh, and the other one will be equipment failure. So, one thing you'll hear uh, Roland talk about is how they've enabled their operators to have the information they need and make it easy to get so they can see improved performance from those operators. So in October of this year, Sanofi, who, another customer of AWS, announced a continuous biologics manufacturing capability. And, and I really like this quote uh, from their CEO, Paul Hudson, because it really uh, in, it typifies what we expect the industry to start to recognize as we move more towards precision medicine that manufacturing is not just a function but can actually be a competitive advantage or the negative side it could be a barrier to getting into market in the first place and we've seen that with certain therapeutic areas as well. Um, so we're really excited. We've seen at AWS in the last 12 months uh, a huge interest in manufacturing and supply chain especially in biopharma because there's a tremendous opportunity uh, and, and our customers know that they need to get that right to introduce this next wave of, of biotherapies and precision medicine to the marketplace. 
and really just wanted to uh, introduce Roland. We're really excited to have him here so you can learn a little bit more about what his company Moderna is doing. Uh, Roland is the Senior Director of Digital GXP Systems. Um, and I'll hand it over to you. Awesome, thank you, Patrick. Um, and thank you to AWS for inviting us here today to share our story. It's an honor to be representing the Moderna team. First, I need to start with a little bit of science because it really is a big reason for our digital strategy. All of our bodies contain DNA. That DNA is transcribed into RNA and that RNA is translated into proteins. Our bodies need thousands of different proteins to function. If you are unlucky enough to have even a small mutation in this path's pathway, you may have a life-altering disease caused by a missing or dysfunctional protein. Before joining Moderna, I spent the last 20 years of my career working with proteins to treat rare diseases. These proteins required highly specialized equipment to make, specialized processes, and giant bioreactors maybe the size of this room. Moderna started with a question, what if mRNA could be a drug? By delivering mRNA into the cells, we could instruct the cells how to make a protein harnessing the power of the body as a bioreactor. This would allow us to make many potential drugs using the same processes and the same equipment in a single manufacturing site. Just simply by changing a few lines of sequence in a messenger RNA code. The power of this platform approach means that every dollar of digital investment we spend accelerates value and learning for all of our current and future products. The power of our pl this platform has enabled us to grow our pipeline rapidly. We currently have 16 programs in clinic, clinical trials across six different modalities. To support the growth of our pipeline, in 2016, we made a bold decision to build a late early stage clinical manufacturing site. Our site is located in Norwood, Massachusetts. It's 200,000 square feet and it hosts about 260 employees. The site has three core functions. First, our preclinical production, which uses integrated robotics to produce about 1,000 messenger RNAs per month at a research scale. Our preclinical area is driven by custom software and leverages artificial intelligence to both improve yields and to reduce failure rates. Second, we have a large scale clinical production area which makes products for human consumption. This area is driven by real-time data and a fully integrated manufacturing execution system. Since the site went live about 18 months ago, we've produced 12 different products to supply clinical trials. The site is also capable of being an early stage launch site for some of our clinical programs. And finally, we have a personalized cancer vaccine unit where we can design and manufacture an individualized cancer vaccine in just about 40 days. In 2019, the site was named, 20, well, <laughs> in 2019, the site was named Facility of the Year by the International Society of Pharmaceutical Engineers. What differentiated the site, according to ISPE, was the fully integrated native digital 
manufacturing capabilities built on AWS. When we first won the award, I got a bunch of messages from friends and colleagues asking kind of how we were able to build a site that was just formed in the cloud. Um, my, my first response to the questions really wanted to be the perfect technical answer, you know, IoT, machine learning, etc. But when I reflected, I realized the secret sauce to what we did really was our culture. Moderna has a digital culture that starts at the top. About three weeks after we launched our personalized cancer vaccine, our CEO stopped me in the hallway and said, I saw a piece of paper in your manufacturing suite. What was that? It turns out that it was an operator just annotating a report to give us some feedback. But that top-down digital support really makes the discussion of digital at Moderna not an if, but a when. And removing those headwinds allows us to actually move faster in our digital transformation at a lower cost. We also have a unique operating model. We've tried to build organizations without silos of systems or data. My digital group, for example, has, we own digital, we own shop floor automation, and we own analytics. What that allows us to do is rapidly improve as we see opportunities to, you know, to maybe streamline or make data more consistent. We're very process focused. So my group would rather be on the manufacturing shop floor watching an operator work and understanding how to make their life er easier rather than sitting in a conference room writing a 100-page user requirements document. We believe strongly that user experience and lean principles go hand in hand. If you make an operator's job easier, your process will inherently be more efficient. We try to integrate compliance into everything we do, both from our integrated operating procedures, as well as error-proofing and reducing error failure modes and systems. Having the people and process in place, for us, technology really has been the easy part. We are very data-driven. We believe that the value of collecting data is key, <laughs> key to our future success. We've tried to design a future-proof ecosystem on AWS, and we build innovation into everything we do. There's no member of my team who is not currently working on at least one side innovation project that will disrupt how they normally work. As an eight-year-old company, Moderna was built on AWS with a cloud-first strategy. From our start, we've tried to integrate all of our systems to eliminate non-value-added transcription and to improve data consistency. Currently, we have over 200 integrations across our digital systems. When it makes sense, we use IoT to solve some of our challenging problems. IoT for us could mean anything from the AWS IoT buttons we use to replenish our materials to an industrially hardened suitcase-sized device with integrated sensors that monitors our critical process. Automation and robotics are used to accelerate our well-defined processes and reduce labor overhead. We have over 40 integrated robots, and our site has about 100 pieces of integrated process equipment. Analytics and learning is built into everything we do. By using data early in our life cycle, we are accelerating insights and driving data quality. 
I think that being, I mean personally, it's important to be good at small data before we try to get good at big data. We use artificial intelligence for everything from optimizing our processes to actually designing our personalized cancer vaccine drug. And digital transformation for us is at the top of the pyramid where we use all of these technologies together to transform business outcomes. Most of my industry peers are trying to move operations to the cloud. As a cloud-first company, my team has had the unique challenge of trying to bring the cloud to operations. This required new compliance and operational models, as well as innovation and experimentation while trying to deliver a large capital project. Our primary requirements was to build a site an infrastructure that could adapt quickly to our changing platform while increasing throughput and empowering our operators. Our digital strategy started long before the walls of the site existed. We got together with stakeholders and we defined what a native digital paperless manufacturing site would look like. We then begin to map all of the processes and information flows on a wall. We took those processes, we affinity grouped them together, and only then did we start talking about technology. And when I say technology, we didn't just talk about software. We actually talked about equipment as well, because we knew that if we wanted to build a fully integrated manufacturing site, digital needed to be at the table to help define the requirements for the equipment so that we could integrate it in a way that reduced complexity and ensured we had the data we needed. With this landscape in hand, we executed 60 concurrent projects over the course of 18 months and delivered a fully integrated, mostly digital landscape. Having this landscape allowed us to do a few things differently. For example, when we deployed our SAP system, we actually built the integrations to our manufacturing ex execution system, which didn't exist yet. We worked proactively with our MES vendor to define what the XML format for communication would look like, and then we black box tested the SAP interfaces when we deployed the system. A year later, when we went live with MES, we plugged the two together, and we had gotten it about 90% right. And part of our culture is we didn't spend a lot of time worrying about missing the 10%. We just swarmed, we connected the dots, and we ran an end-to-end -end performance qualification to release the system in only a couple of weeks. The other thing that having this landscape allowed us to do was to change how we delivered the project at times. If any of you have been on a large capital project, you probably know the critical path doesn't always go as you hoped. There were many mornings at the site where we would huddle together, we would look at the processes we could work on today, and we looked at the equipment that we could connect today, and then we would just plan our day on an as-needed basis. Having all the teams on the same page with this type of landscape really helped us to achieve that. Understanding our processes, our equipment, and our failure modes allowed us to design a digital landscape that is about 95%, where 95% of our computing capacity resides on the cloud, primarily in AWS. Some unique things about this landscape 
our, our Dell Bumi integration bus, where we connect, we have about 50 integrations between systems that eliminates data transcription, but more importantly, it ensures that we have primary and foreign keys that are consistent across all of our systems. This type of design thinking has actually greatly accelerated our analytic strategy that I'm gonna talk about later. We're running SAP on S4 HANA in the cloud. We're just starting to unlock the potential of the, the potential performance of the columnar database. And because this, this landscape is supporting critical manufacturing operations, we needed to raise the bar on cybersecurity. We actually applied something at the site called a zero trust network. What that means is that by default, nothing at the site could talk to nothing. So for each system, we needed to identify the specific IP addresses and the specific ports and explicitly allow a firewall rule for communication. This required a lot of design discipline because we found often things didn't go as planned and when we went to the vendors, their software or their equipment was communicating on ports that they didn't even know they were using. This also required a degree of operational discipline because even to add a printer on the shop floor, we would need to explicitly allow an IP address and open a firewall port. For the remainder of our time together today, I'm gonna to do a little bit deeper dive into how we control our shop floor using AWS. I'm gonna talk about how we've transformed workstation computing in the lab. I'm gonna talk a little bit about the digital overlay of how we make personalized medicine and then how we're currently democratizing our data. Our manufacturing landscape is driven by an electronic batch record system that is hosted by AWS. We have simple instruments on site, such as scales, which have two-way integrations using AWS Direct Connect. The scales can weigh out a raw material with real-time interactions in an EBR to dispense the materials. Our Delta V process control system is one of two servers that resides, or one of two production servers that resides on the site. We use the PCS traditionally to control on-site utilities such as WIFI or process air. For the remainder of our equipment, we use PCS non-traditionally as an integration layer between our MES and the equipment. With over 100 pieces of equipment integrated at the site, using PCS as a bus has allowed us to simplify communication. In general, an MES system is not great at talking to each piece of individual equipment, but a PCS system is. For processing, oops, for processing we leverage smart off-the-shelf skids and have developed product agnostic parametized recipes. So basically, the recipes on the skids are a series of building blocks with well-defined phases and I.O. So we can pass down a variable such as flow rate, we can automatically calculate our tolerance, and then we can call the pieces as we need them. Each new product we bring in starts with a tech transfer. The tech transfer basically tells us that, uh, kind of the unique nuances of how we're gonna make that product. 
even though we're a platform company, about 95% of our processes in this is the same, but there are just little nuances that we want to make sure the operator can do their job appropriately. We use a bill of instructions for any of those special instructions. We use a bill of parameters, which are all of the control points and the set points required to make that product. And then we use a recipe which calls each of the individual building blocks required to make the product. From there, our manufacturing execution system passes that information down to the SCID for execution. At each key phase gate, there's back and forth between MES and the SCIDs. And in the event of a technical disruption, we have our second production server on site, which is our data historian and our continuous monitoring system. What this does is it allows us to maintain site control, to actually see our data, and see our alarms so we can respond to keep people and process safe. Our manufacturing suites are designed around the operator user experience. The operator can drive the whole process from a single ergotron they can wheel around the room. The electronic batch record tells them which equipment they can use. It tells them if it's been standardized and ready for use. It tells them if it's calibrated. And as I mentioned in my last slide, it can control, control the equipment with two-way information reads. For bill of materials, for things that are specific to the process, the electronic batch record at every material step asks SAP which materials should I use now. The users can scan in the materials, they can consume them, material is debited from SAP, and when they create a new material, it's put into SAP inventory for control. Similarly, at each sampling point in our process, the electronic execution batch record system asks the limb systems, what samples should I take now? It prints the labels for those systems. When the operators apply them and drop them off in a pickup location, it pushes the information about that sample over to LIMS in real time. When the QC analysts test the product and enter a result, it comes back to the batch record automatically for required calculations. One example would be a concentration, for example, to calculate um, weighing out a future step. By integrating these systems, we prevent the users from having to chase down that information and we allow them to focus on what their primary responsibilities are. Within the electronic batch record system, any exception, so if, for example, they drop a bottle of material and they need to use a different lot of comparable material, the, the batch record will give the flexibility to allow them, but it will create an automatic exception that needs to be resolved. Just about three weeks ago, we implemented real-time quality review and supervisor review of those exceptions. All of this together has had measurable savings. We've reduced manual exceptions by about 85%. We've reduced shift labor by about 40%. And we've reduced batch record view, review time from three days to three hours. We're hopeful that with this new real-time quality review, 
we'll actually be able to someday reduce, reduce that batch record review down to about three minutes. For consumables, our process started out in SAP. When a material got low, an operator would have to go into the system and manually enter a reservation to tell the materials management group what they needed. This was error prone for two reasons. Occasionally, we would have stock outs, and more often, we would actually have overstocks, where multiple operators would enter the same order, would add or dupli enter duplicate of the same order. We got creative and we raised the bar. We used Amazon's IoT buttons and deployed them to all of our consumables so that by simply pressing the button, the operator could have a new material delivered. How this works is we built a custom IoT application that can assign each device to a location and a material number. When they push the button, an SNS message is sent up and goes to an SQS queue where we have another custom application that monitors the queue and takes the request out of the queue, uses some lightweight analytics to optimize the delivery kind of order and grouping, and then pushes it into a final queue. Twice daily, Dell Bumi, which is our integration boss I mentioned, connects to that queue, pulls those materials, and passes them down to the SAP system for delivery. Since we deployed this technology about 18 months ago, we have eliminated 5,000 manual entries in the SAP system. Now, if you kind of do a time and motion study of those entries, it's only about 80 hours of direct savings. But the important thing is that we've removed a distraction so that the operators can do what is most important, and that is focus on making product. Every product we make requires laboratory testing to make sure that it is safe and it performs as expected. If any of you have lab environments, you know that it has some pretty unique challenges. More than half of the equipment we use is operated only by a workstation, and the majority of our vendors have never heard or barely heard of the cloud. We needed to figure out how to ensure data integrity and how do you use, use, sorry, utilize the insights from the unstructured files that were sitting on those workstations? We have about 23 different types of laboratory equipment that we use to test our product. For anything that was client server based, we actually used our standard kind of template of EC2s and RDS. In some cases, Obviously, there was an uplift of trying to explain to vendors what RDS actually was. Often what we would do is we would end up trying to extract the problem with them and just say, pretend it's a regular database, and now do you have to do this? Do you have to do that? And we could kind of coach them through the process and ultimately get it working. For our largest equipment class, which were HPLCs, we partnered with our vendor to deploy the workstation software onto AppStream in the cloud. By having the software and the raw materials, excuse me, <laughs> by having the software and the raw data in the cloud, we we're actually able to significantly improve processing speed. 
things like peak integrations in HPLC, for example, came down from minutes to seconds. We actually made a big enough difference that for about two weeks we were getting support calls where people were asking why the system wasn't working appropriately. The first time we had an auditor tour our labs and they saw our QC technicians working on their own personal laptops, they immediately got like a little flabbergasted and said, you know, you, you really can't be using personal computers to process, you know, your testing. When we explained that they were actually accessing a controlled desktop in the cloud where they could not modify the data and they were controlling the equipment through validated controllers on the site, the auditors actually started asking, how could everybody else do this? The bigger challenge was what to do with all of the other disparate software packages that created unstructured files in multiple file types and multiple formats. What we did is we partnered with a company called Logilab, which installed a lightweight layer on each workstation. That workstation controls which software they can run, and it controls where they can save the data that the software generates. It also prevents and ensures that they can't modify or touch the data once it's saved. As soon as the data is saved, it's actually pushed to a controlled, audited vault in the cloud. So now we had moved these unstructured files off of the desktop into the cloud. What we needed to do is try to figure out how to get the data. We took it a step further and we partnered with Logilab to develop a tool that allowed us to map and parse the unstructured data real time from those files within moments of hitting the servers on AWS. We then built web services which could actually push that data to our LIM system for quick consumption. So when I talk about digital transformation, this is a good example where in the last slide, that concentration value, getting that back to manufacturing in a timely way really requires changing and adjusting and digitizing the entire value stream. For instruments that are earlier stage or higher value but do not generate data files, we have implemented IoT monitoring devices that analyze electrical signals and we use machine learning the first time they're operated to train them to recognize when a piece of equipment is on or off. These devices can also detect anomaly detections in power signals. So if a solid state drive is using a little bit more power, it can actually send an alert and notify us that there's a potential error condition. Right now, we use this data to support capital decision making. If somebody wants you know, two new fancy tools, and we already have eight that are being underutilized, this data can help us sort of facilitate that collaboration to make sure that the equipment is being optimized and maybe redistributed. Installing this low-cost IoT technology for us is also part of playing a long game. A few times in my career, I've tried to work on projects where we implemented kind of predictive maintenance and things like that. And usually what we realized was that we didn't really understand how our equipment operated or failed. For us, by building this data in, we believe that in the future, we will be able to get to use-based calibration and true predictive failure.
when we designed our digital landscape, we knew that we would soon need to extend it to support personalized medicine. While building it, we talked to the process experts that were making the process, and we kind of tried to understand where the guardrails were and make sure that the whole thing we designed would actually accommodate it. Because we're a platform process, most of our manufacturing process for personalized medicine was pretty similar, and we were able to use all of the tools, including the electronic batch record system, our limb system, you know, SAP, in, in, in a pretty similar way. But what was very unique in personalized medicine was maintaining the chain of identity of all the materials and the patient materials, as well as extending our platforms to our partners in our supply chain. Our personalized cancer vaccine is built around the patient. I'm going to talk a little bit more about it in the next slide. But fundamentally, we take a tissue sample, we sequence it, we design a vaccine, we make it on the site, and then we ship it and administer it to patients. This all requires needle-to-needle -needle chain of identity. Two days ago, I was sitting with a colleague on the ground floor of the Venetian having lunch. And as an operations guy, I couldn't help but marvel at how the organizers of this conference could deliver a pretty darn good lunch for several thousand people in probably the largest food court I've ever seen. That is fundamentally how batch processing works. Now, if you imagine that all 65,000 attendees here could have a made-for-purpose lunch of whatever they wanted, that is personalized medicine. And you can probably imagine it's a little bit more complicated. To manage our complexity, to manage the complexity of producing a personalized cancer vaccine, we had to develop custom software that is integrated with our partners, our supply chain, and our internal manufacturing. Each patient is assigned a unique ID, and every material, every step, and every location is tracked to ensure that the patient receives drug specifically manufactured for them. Next generation sequencing, the next generation sequencing we perform, identifies the mutations specific to their individual cancer. That 130 gigabyte file is pushed to S3 and into our bioinformatics pipeline. And maybe I'm just getting a little bit old, but I remember a time not long ago where moving or processing a file of that size might have been our biggest technical challenge. Today, that data is processed on our pipeline on AWS. We use neural networks to design the vaccine and the messenger RNA sequence. We use proprietary algorithms to select the neoantigens that will target their specific mutations and recommend the appropriate amino acid sequence to elicit the desired immune response specific to that patient. Now at this point, the drug is still only data until we start manufacturing. Our on-site manufacturing begins, and as I mentioned, every material step is controlled and tracked. QC testing is performed using a test specification that is unique to each individual patient. As I was going through these slides, I was reflecting that I could literally do an entire talk just about the complexity of how we have to achieve that. 
Together, manufacturing and QC takes less than 30 days to complete and release. And once released, the drug product is sent to the site and administered. After our phase one trial, we had a good data set to understand the variability and degrees of success at each step in the process I just described. To support a larger phase two clinical trial, we needed to ensure we were able to plan for rework and variability while ensuring the drug product is delivered on time to co-dose with Pembro, a drug provided by our partner on this product, Merck. Leveraging our existing data, we use Monte Carlo simulations to predict the behavior of hundreds of virtual trials. This data helped us match supply and demand with our capacity and plan the appropriate phase two investments in both equipment and resources. For each patient, we have three potential dosing windows, and this virtualized stress testing of our process has helped us to deliver on target with optimized investment. As you've seen, we can plan, track, and use data to simulate operations, but for every step in that process, we need to continually improve to reduce the potential for error. With personalized medicine, there is very little room for failure. In most cases, we have a patient with cancer waiting for this therapy. For PCV, we produce, for personalized cancer, we produce multiple patients' materials in a single ballroom. We use color-coded trains, and the operators assigned to these trains actually gown in color-coded gowns and buffons. When they go into the operation, they also pick up, I don't have a badge, but they also pick up a color-coded badge. And that badge has a sensor that can track their location within six inches of accuracy. The sensors we use, the ultra-wideband sensors we use, are the same technology used by the NFL to track players on the field. And we were inspired by this idea by looking at operations in oil and gas and aeronautics. Sometimes for fun, I joke that the first time we met with the company that does it, they asked us if we cared about the speed of our operators. We don't, but someday, just for fun, in our analytics data set, I'm sure we'll probably be calculating it. Having Having this real-time data does two things. We surface it to a real-time control tower at the site where we can actually see operator movements and we can alarm if, for example, they leave the blue train, they realize they forgot something, and they go back. Once they've entered the exit path, going back would be a potential cross-contamination. Also, as they're leaving, if for some reason they drift into one of the other trains, our visual dashboards will alarm and we'll look into the problem. Our digital investments have achieved measurable savings, but the value of the data we are collecting is invaluable, and it helps us to drive our business and our scientific strategy. We're still at the very beginning of our journey but in manufacturing alone, we have collected over 125 million rows of data on Amazon Redshift. And that does not include process data, real-time process data, 
or the location services data. We believe that if we can democratize this data early in our history as a company, we can build a better biotech and prevent silos of data from ever occurring. To do this requires that we're able to surface that data as part of our system's lifecycle and that we have flexible data strategy that allows us to quickly improve the context of the data and improve consistency. To stay flexible yet focused, we've separated our data strategy into three separate areas. First, our operations data sets. Our operations data sets includes things like cycle time or you know, failure rates. Second is product knowledge. This is kind of how our process is performing. This would include things like yields, outcomes, or the control of a variable within a specific step of the process. And finally, our business strategy data. This is our clinical trial, clinical trial dates. These are things that we're marching to as a business. These are you know, vendor information or vendor performance. Building our data pipeline was kind of a fun engineering challenge. We use a lightweight ETL process where we lift all of the key tables we want off of our source systems and we replicate them over to Amazon Redshift. The T in this process is a little bit more of a lowercase t in that we do some lightweight transformations to convert data types just for Redshift compatibility. We then develop materialized views specific to our use cases. We're spending a lot of time interrogating the data early and trying to build models to unforeseen questions. We present this data through multiple outputs. First, we have a controlled statistical layer where we can make sure that anybody who is performing a critical calculation is consuming the same data set. So for example, if we want to look at the shelf life expiration of our product using stability data, there's calculations that are well-defined that can do that. Those can be accessed through a lightweight layer for statistical analysis from a bunch of people. Some groups can also interrogate the data directly using ad hoc tools such as Jump. We have a business intelligence portal where groups can go they can build metrics against their process, but that they can see all of the processing data for the site. So we try really hard not to build a supply chain portal or a QC portal or a manufacturing portal. We really try within our data sets to allow all groups to be able to view the same data sets, the same calculations, and the same definitions in the same ways. Oh, sorry, I forgot two more. Um, we also have controlled reporting. So controlled reporting is two things. Anything that's critical to a regulator that we're going to give them in an audit or anything that has financial context or needs advanced security, we would either build into our controlled porting system or in some cases we would actually leave it in the source system where there could be audit trails of when they ran it and stuff like that. And then finally, we've wrapped some of this data with web services so that it can be consumed by our custom applications. One example 
of one of our custom applications is our internally developed control tower. The control tower aggregates all of our streaming IoT sensor data, our transactional data, as well as our key master data. These boards are installed throughout the site and are fully touch interactive and use visual cues to actually drive behaviors. Um, where I sit on the site, I actually have one of these near my desk. And generally speaking, if there's an alarm and a room starts blinking red, just from a human nature perspective, I cannot watch it and not want to do something. Implementing these type of technologies has actually measurably shown increases in our, or decreases in our response time to these events. So if you look at the data, you know, before the control tower, maybe it was an hour. With our control tower, in most cases, it's minutes. In a lot of cases, our alarms now are acknowledged so quickly, like, kind of like the HPLC example earlier, we get calls that say people aren't even getting alarms because they've been received and they're being worked on before they ever get to somebody. This board is also used for morning huddles to plan the day. It integrates with our scheduling system so the teams that are gathering around it can see what they're making today and what is required to make it. It includes equipment integration, which shows the real-time status of, is something calibrated and ready for use? Are there validation activities going on it, on, on it? Is it standardized? Or are there any open work orders? And again, as I mentioned, the, the visible alarm status allows them to respond quickly. Other benefits of our analytics and strategy include accelerating the time from production to learning. So when we were on traditional paper, getting the data off of a thousand page batch record to write a summary report would take a day or two. When we went to an electronic batch record system, they would actually go into the system at first and transcribe it out of the system into Excel. They'd do some calculations. They'd maybe rename a few fields to make it look the way they wanted to look it. That would take a few hours. Once we started pulling this data up and building the kind of the access and the democratization that I talked about earlier, it now takes seconds. It's a few clicks through their statistical analysis tool and they have their control charts, they have their batch summaries, and they can spend their time analyzing the data rather than manually collecting it. Additionally, we've used the data to, to focus our process improvements. For example, soon after launching the site, we started looking at those exceptions I mentioned earlier, and we tried to understand which processes had the most repeat occurrences of exceptions. We then use that data to focus our system improvements to actually measurably reduce the exceptions on each of the steps. And it's pretty cool when you start looking at this data because you can just see the visual trend of how we're changing operations. We've also used it to focus in on turnaround time improvements. On the top right, that is an actual turnaround of a process where through continuous improvement, through looking at that data, We've brought it down by a percent, I won't say, but by a lot. And then finally, driving the reduction of variability. Um, this is an overall testament, I think, to our digital investment. But in our manufacturing process, we've reduced overall turnaround time by about 2.5 days 
And if you notice on the bottom right, we've reduced variability significantly. It might come as a surprise, but as we were building our site, things didn't always go as planned. Trying to innovate while deploying a large capital project came with some natural sort of frictions and a lot of lessons learned. Today I'm just going to share probably what I would consider our big three. First, start with a strategy. Large capital projects require rigorous schedules, but in our fast evolving world, it was hard to schedule innovation. In my past, I've lived in a lot of projects where the strategy starts to become the schedule and vice versa. And sometimes the vision and desired outcomes get lost in a timeline. I use the picture of the flashlight here because at many times during our project, it felt like we were running down the hill in the dark with only a flashlight to guide our way. We never knew exactly when something we were trying was going to work the way we wanted or when we would need to pivot. We certainly tripped and fell a few times as well. But through it all, we had a shared vision and landscape strategy for what a native digital manufacturing site would look like. And within our 18-month project, my team and our stakeholders took turns helping each other up when we fell and reminding of each other of our digital outcome. At the end of the day, like when we reflect back on this project, we probably achieved about 10% schedule adherence, but we achieved 90% or more of our strategic outcome in the timeline and in the budget that was expected. We've all probably worked on projects, oh, lesson to learn too, um, partner with quality early. We've all probably worked on projects where quality might be seen as a gatekeeper. And you never know when you're gonna hit a red light, how long it will take, or how you're gonna get through it. We knew that to innovate and do things differently would require a different kind of partnership. Early in our project, we worked with quality leadership to understand their perspectives. We defined common operating procedures. We defined clear testing methodologies. And we set guidelines to ensure compliance. We also partnered closely with them as a key stakeholder to improve compliance outcomes in everything we designed. This trust and relationship removed gates accelerated our efforts and built lasting relationships. Since the site was launched, we've actually had four partner audits at the site. And in each one of them, the digital team and quality have sat side by side presenting the solutions, our validation, and our outcomes to auditors. I think that relationship with, that we have together and that shared trust that you know, we're kind of representing each other in that room together has allowed us to continue improvement and kind of keep up our pace of change. And to be honest, I think it also reflects really well with the auditors we're interacting with, because it's obvious that we're building compliance into what we do. And finally, 
integrating vendors into our culture. Large capital projects usually use waterfall methodologies, and most of the vendors that support them are risk averse and would prefer to identify every possible detail of the scope of a project before starting. If we were going to build something different, we weren't going to be able to start with a 100-page user requirements document. But in our early engagements, this is exactly what our partners and vendors pushed for. Before documents could even be finalized, usually we had experimented on three different things and changed our approach, so the documents were already obsolete. We started pushing harder for a let's just try it methodology, but our vendors were hesitant to show us a solution that wasn't 100% engineered. Now, Moderna culture, or in Moderna culture, we're bold, we're relentless, we're collaborative, and we're curious. In order to get vendors to work with us and to model those values, we had to make it okay for them to fail. We actually changed the way we worked together. We made some of their key engineers come and sit with us. We spent time in rooms brainstorming together and in something that they had never tried doing before, in our batch record designs, we started getting to minimal viable products, where we would put something in front of operators and let them try it in a manufacturing area and kind of shake it down at a 40% level to give us ideas for improvement so that we could improve it early versus late. This actually resulted in more failures, but they were quicker failures and we learned from them much, much quicker. And through the sort of timeline of the project, as this model and as vendors started to become integrated into our culture, we actually saw that our output accelerated and our burn rate decreased. The personalized cancer vaccine area, which was one of our latest phases of our product, was actually deployed in about four months. So, so if you think about retrofitting that entire landscape in four months, that was built on really just having vendors as part of our culture. So with that, in closing, people and culture were the most important element of our digital transformation. Having end-to-end -end value stream thinking and process maps enabled our digital transformation and having both of these in place, technology really was the easy part. Thank you.